This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello, welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Peter Clotin. Here's what's coming up. It accused Hamas, designated a terrorist group by Washington, of using civilian Palestinians as human shields. That's reporter Darren Taylor on Israel's defense of his assault on the Hamas militant group in the Gaza area. Also, we'll have a report from Ivory Coast where the AFCON football tournament starts tomorrow. And Cape Verde has become the third African nation to be declared malaria-free. All this and more coming up on African News Tonight. South Africa has been complimented and criticized globally for accusing Israel of committing genocide in Gaza. South Africa's legal team wants an immediate ruling from the International Criminal Court of Justice in the Netherlands to halt Israel's offensive in the Palestinian territory controlled by Hamas. The Israel Defense Forces launched the campaign after Hamas attacks on Israel on October 7th killed about 1,200 people. Darren Taylor reports. The Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza says the Israel Defense Forces offensive has killed more than 23,000 people, mostly civilians. South Africa's lawyers argued Thursday that was evidence Israel aimed to cause the destruction of the population of Gaza. At the International Court of Justice on Friday, Israel's legal team called South Africa's case a distortion of the truth and a deliberately manipulative description of the reality of current hostilities. It accused Hamas, designated a terrorist group by Washington, of using civilian Palestinians as human shields. The South African government has condemned the October 7th attack on Israel. But its lawyers asserted it did not give the Israeli government the right to commit what Pretoria calls genocide. In court, Israel emphasized its right to self-defense, insisting it's doing all it can to protect civilians as it tries to destroy Hamas. International law expert at the University of Dundee in Scotland, Musa Mundenge, told VOA that South Africa's presentation to the ICJ was a pivotal point in history. He says it's less about IDF actions since October 7 and more about telling the world Israel's been committing atrocities against Palestinians for decades. We saw the South African legal team use quotations from key Israeli military officials and politicians in order to draw the line of intention, the intention to commit genocide. Now, unfortunately, this court does not have jurisdiction to charge and convict a person of a crime such as genocide. But what they can do is at least lay before the world what kind of action Israel needs to take in order to limit the consequences of its military action, but also to invoke in other United Nations members a call to say they need to hold Israel accountable. And I think that is where South Africa's strategy is trying to draw the world towards. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu called South Africa hypocritical for failing to respond to atrocities in Syria and Yemen by what he called partners of Hamas. He said Israel was actually fighting genocide. The United States, Germany and other allied countries have rejected South Africa's allegation of genocide. 
Wirtz University Law Professor Bonita Meyersfeld thinks the ICJ's eventual judgment will be extremely focused. To the extent that there is a finding either against South Africa or in favor of South Africa, my view is that that finding will be based very squarely on the legal principles presented by the South African legal team and not on the larger political, moral or international relations question here. It's not going to be about whether there is an historical wrong that's being committed, whether there's a justification for what's happened or not. I think there's going to be a very crisp, narrow decision based on the facts as presented by both parties and the question of whether those facts constitute a violation of the legal principles as contained in the Genocide Convention. While the court could issue a provisional ruling within weeks on South Africa's request, it order a halt to the Israeli offensive. It could be years before the ICJ issues a final verdict. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. The World Health Organization has certified Cabo Verde as malaria-free, marking a significant achievement in global health. The nation becomes the 43rd country worldwide to achieve the certification. According to WHO, more than 90% of malaria cases are in sub-Saharan Africa and the majority of victims are children under five. WHO says that Cape Verde has gone three consecutive years without local malaria transmission and has not reported a single case since January 1st, 2021. For more insight, viewers, health correspondent Lenore Mudu spoke with Dr. Dorothy Achu, Team lead for tropical and vector-borne diseases in the regional office for Africa. It took a lot of hard work on the part of the leadership of, of, of um, Cabo Verde. Uh, this is over 50 years of uh, fighting against malaria. It's um, it's a small country with a uh, with low trans- uh, malaria transmission, so they were already um, identified as eligible for eliminating malaria by 2025. So uh, the government of Cabo Verde has been working hard on this and they have had several iterations of reducing incidents and even elimination, eliminating disease before this, uh, this year of, for the certification. The country had a five-year strategy. What, what do you think other African countries can learn from the Cabo Verde experience? Yes, the Cabo Verde just completed um, a strategy for elimination of malaria. It takes um, determination to get to zero cases. And uh, once a country adopts that kind of policy, it means they are ready to mobilize the resources that it takes in terms of strengthening the follow-up of cases, uh, what we call surveillance. Surveillance is really tracking down all cases, making sure they are identified early and treated with very effective medication. But not only that, also looking at the vectors that transmit the parasite from one person to another, the mosquitoes. So uh, there's been a lot of work in understanding the distribution of the mosquitoes, their behavior, and the choice of interventions. The Cabo Verde has been involved in mass campaigns of spraying, and, and reducing the mosquito density, and also um, now 
getting to fight resistance and, and trying to get the right interventions to uh, eliminate the, the, the malaria vectors. So they have reduced the, the vectors, the density of vectors, but most importantly, they have eliminated the parasites from the vectors. So you can have mosquitoes, but you no longer have the parasites because they, they are no longer circulating in the, in the country. How does the WHO collaborate with uh, uh, Cabo Verde to ensure that uh, they can sustain this achievement? We have worked with Cabo Verde to develop a strategy, which is to prevent the re-establishment of malaria. And in that plan, uh, it takes really strengthening the health system, the laboratory systems to, to properly diagnose, uh, train the doctors, nurses, train uh, surveillance officers, train vector control teams to be able to uh, monitor uh, cases that could be suspected for malaria, but on the vector space also identify that there are no infected mosquitoes in the country. Cabo Verde is the third country to be certified in the WHO African region after Mauritius and Algeria, which were certified in 1973 and 2019, respectively. South Africa's ex-president Jacob Zuma has joined forces with another former top ruling party official today, announcing a political alliance in a blow to the African National Congress. The French news agency AFP reports that Zuma, 81, and Ace Magashule, a close ally and former ANC Secretary General, say they will soon unveil plans. The pair, who both lost their jobs over corruption allegations, have recently formed separate parties in the run-up to general elections due to take place between May and August. The move could further dilute support for the ANC, which is struggling in the polls and could see its share of the vote drop below 50% for the first time since the advent of democracy in 1994. Fighting between rival Sudanese forces, including airstrikes on the capital Khartoum, have killed at least 33 civilians overnight. Nearly nine months of war has pitted Army Chief Abdel Fattah al-Burhan against his former deputy, Paramilitary Commander Mohamed Hamdan Daglo. The French news agency AFP reports that the fighting has claimed at least 12,190 lives. That's according to an estimate by the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project. And the United Nations says more than 7 million people have been displaced. The Emergency Lawyers Group says 23 civilians were killed and several more wounded yesterday by area bombing in South Khartoum Soba district. The group confirms 10 other deaths in artillery strikes also in southern Khartoum. You are listening to African News Tonight. I'm Peter Clote in Washington. For more information on these and other stories from the continent, please see viewerafrica.com. There you will find all your favorite viewer radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. For world news, check out viewernews.com. In Ivory Coast, the first football match between the host nation and Guinea-Bissau officially kicks off at the 
AFCON tournament tomorrow. The Elephant of Ivory Coast lock horns with the Jotis at the commercial capital Abidjan at 8 p.m. local time. Analysts say, as the host nation, the Elephant of Ivory Coast are expected to win the match, especially with an array of key players who ply their trade in the major European leagues. But not much is known of the players from Guinea-Bissau. For the latest development ahead of the game tomorrow, I reach Mogbil Yabaro, who is currently in Ivory Coast, to cover the competition. Peter, it is uh, electrifying, to say the least. At the moment, you look around Abidjan, you see so many different types of people that are here with all of their different colors, uh, being loud and supporting their teams. You have people, when you go to the restaurants, that are talking about their teams. I remember uh, we went to a restaurant uh, last night, and uh, some uh, Senegalese brothers came through, and they were walking through saying, here we are, the champions of Africa. Uh, <laughs> so it was, it, it's really fun that the fans are really uh, locked in, excited to be supporting their team. So it's, it's a great atmosphere. Well, tomorrow is the big day, the beginning of the tournament. What are you hearing on the ground about uh, the anticipated performance of the Elephant of Ivory Coast and the opponents? Uh, so at the moment, everybody has this idea about Ivory Coast and what they do. So basically, the, the top thing is that Cote d'Ivoire have a reputation for not necessarily living up to expectations, right? So sometimes if the pressure is too high, they don't perform. But it's sometimes if they're, you know, maybe not, not held to the highest of regards, maybe just maybe they sneak through and just kind of play play the, the, the game that we know that they can play. I think there is a heightened level of expectation because it is in Cote d'Ivoire, but I think this time they are ready for the task. So I, I'm excited to see what they do. The fans here are expecting uh, their team to do nothing but come out of that Group A uh, they will be playing uh, Guinea-Bissau tomorrow at 8 p.m. Abidjan time. And I'm excited, man, to say the least. Me personally, I think Guinea-Bissau is also a very solid team. Uh, and, and I know what it would mean for them to start off this tournament with a potential upset. You know, that type of momentum carries you over into a different distance into, into the tournament. So... Just know that that game will be action-packed. But uh, Ivory Coast, if people expect them to do what they're supposed to do, they should come away with a win with their fans. You know, Mugbeo, some analysts will tell you that members of the Ivorian team ply their trade in Europe, very successful, very famous. Not much is known about the Guinea-Bissau team, but that is the beauty of football. Any, at any given time, anybody can win. The beauty of the game is at any given time, there's only 11 players. So it doesn't matter how big of a team you are, how great of a team you are. We saw, we saw this similarly in the past World Cup, where a Moroccan team that was absolutely high quality as well, but they went up against Portugal side, Spain side, that had maybe bigger names than they did. Could have, if you played it deep in the back against France as well, you know, that game could have went either way because they were dominating that game to get score. So, any given time, we'll see who is the better team. What are you hearing about how this tournament particularly is being organized 
and reaction of people that you've interacted with so far since you arrived in Ivory Coast and their expectations, their high expectations and focus on tomorrow's game? So, Peter, the thing about uh, AFCON is if you were to split it in two parts, part one, fanfare, the experience on what they're doing, even from us when we landed um, in Abidjan Airport, just seeing the work that they've put into uh, making sure that every team that is here that is being represented is, you know, being represented to the highest degree, having flags, you know, uh, all around the airports of all the teams that are participating. Fans are being, you know, welcomed. And it, 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 it is an overwhelming uh, process. The entire area that is set up uh, for fanfare, you have a beautiful LED lights of soccer balls, you know, and, and, and signs that say CAF uh, all over uh, the, the city of Abidjan. That's my colleague Mokbe Yabro in Ivory Coast to cover the AFCON competition for VOA. He spoke with me from the commercial capital, Abidjan. CES, the biggest electronic show in the world, wraps up today in the U.S. city of Las Vegas. VOA journalist Tina Trin is there and she joins me now by phone to talk about this year's highlight. Welcome, Tina. Thank you. Let's begin by me asking were there any new product at CES that looked likely to be commercial hits? That's a great question because there are plenty of products that don't look like reality anytime soon, including flying cars. But, um, yes, along the lines of more practical uh, tools and applications, I think you're going to see more and more tools that um, allow us to be in this digital world because the physical and the digital worlds are definitely beginning to blend, and there will be tools that make it even harder for us to tell the difference between the two. One example uh, that I saw is uh, a pair of uh, haptic gloves um, or uh, a device that you wear on your hand that allows you to really feel things in the digital world. Uh, Previously, when you were uh, engaging with um, objects in the metaverse, for example, you maybe pick things up, try to pick things up and not actually feel the volume or the weight of these items, and now you can feel as if these are have mass to them, and you can feel pushback when you push on things. Um, and so a lot of tools like that that allow us to really uh, be immersed in these worlds and, and be, make it that much harder to tell the difference between the two. Now, Trina, you mentioned flying cars, but were there any surprising new products this week? I think um, everybody was talking about AI, and I think it's really captured the imagination of the general public. And you're going to see it interwoven into many different um, applications and hardware devices. Um, This is not necessarily earth-shattering, groundbreaking uh, technology. AI has been around for decades, but uh, with tools like ChatGPT really Um, making it that much more uh, accessible, I think, in the minds of people. Um, Things like being able to ask your email to compose uh, an uh, email to your boss, for example. Um, But then beyond that, using AI to to solve for bigger problems, like the the lack of diversity in hiring, and AI uh, being used by recruiters to scan resumes and pick potential candidates that would be a better fit. Um, 
Right now, CES is really touting its partnership with the UN Campaign of Human Security for All. And that's asking the question of how can technology solve for some of the larger, more pressing problems to mankind, including climate change, um, food insecurity. And so you're going to see uh, products that are geared towards that, whether it's uh, things that items that can make water out of air um, and convert the air into water for places where there's water insecurity. And vertical farms um, that can grow crops um, indoors and not have to utilize uh, resources, uh, perhaps in war zones where uh, there's lack of food, you could potentially have one of these inflatable farms that converts uh, the air into water to uh, harvest some crops. Finally, before you go, Trina, briefly, today is the last day of CES, which is a vast gathering. What's the feeling like there today, briefly? I think everybody is really relieved. <laughs> this is a massive, massive show. It um, spans 12 different huge convention halls. Um, there are over 4,000 exhibitors here, over 130,000 visitors who um, Organizers say uh, estimated came through um, over 1,200 startups. The show is just completely uh, huge, overwhelming. It's it's like sensory overload. So I think a lot of people are relieved that they're heading into the final day. It's definitely been inspiring to see some of the ideas um, as far out there as some of them have been. Um, they definitely have everyone thinking about the possibilities for technology in the future. And at the same time, there are responses that are much more down-to-earth and very practical about how we can use these technologies in our everyday lives. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, um, this is about um, centering humans uh, in the process of uh, creating technologies. Thank you, Tina. That's viewers. Tina Trin covering the CES Electronic Show in Las Vegas. Mexican environmentalists are using small amounts of Colorado River water to revive part of a once thriving Delta ecosystem. Matt Dibble has the final story in our five-part series, River at Risk. Only about 10% of the water that flows in the Colorado River makes it to Mexico. And at the Morelos Dam at the border... That water is diverted for use in agriculture. The River Delta, which once extended another 160 kilometers to the Gulf of California, now ends here. And the once dynamic wetland habitat is now mostly sand, rocks, and invasive species. Miguel Vargas is Director of River Conservation with Pro Natura Noroeste, part of a coalition dedicated to restoring Delta habitat piece by piece. He shows a section of dry riverbed the group is considering for its next project. This is the Colorado River in Mexico. When I see a site like this, it looks impossible. It is possible and you need not really uh, too much water. Vargas then shows a nearby restoration site where in less than 10 years, the group has grown a small forest of willow and cottonwood trees. We try to copy the river flow. The Raise the River Coalition receives river water from both the Mexican and U.S. governments with the goal of creating a series of these sites to replace some of what has been lost to the river's overuse. 
Native trees and bushes are grown in nurseries and planted by the coalition and community volunteers. Gabriela Coloca Michel, a program coordinator for Pro Natura Noroeste, shows another older site. It's really amazing uh, when you create this habitat, how the response of the wildlife and birds can be. In the beginning, when we start at these uh, sites, we found five species of birds. And now we find more than a hundred species. And that wraps up this edition of Africa News Tonight. I'm Peter Clote in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer David Vandy and our engineer Patrick Dea, thanks for choosing the Voice of America. <laughs>